The uh, title of this message is God's Children Do Righteousness. And I wonder if we do it sort of like uh, Dudley. We have Dudley up here? Yeah. You know Dudley, right? Dudley do right? Only Dudley do righteousness just doesn't quite work, so it's Dudley do right, God's children do righteousness. If you don't know who Dudley do right is or was, I, th- I don't know if he still exists, but he was a Canadian Mountie who's kind of clumsy and klutzy and sort of naive and sort of a do-gooder type. Is this what it means for a Christian, God's child, to do righteousness, kind of naively going about trying to do the best we can in a world that continually changes the definition of what right or righteousness is? Well, in John, in 1 John, we get his typically hardcore, straightforward, black-and-white, absolute statements about what true life in Christ looks like. And it's really challenging, and today it doesn't get... Today is as challenging as ever, the language that he uses. So uh, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then maybe we'll take some time to debrief at the end, because the words he says are, are as I said, very challenging. But we're in the study of 1 John on the theme of true life, true life in Christ. And we're going to jump in at verse 4 in chapter 3 and look through verse 4 through uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for seeing to it that in real time, 2,000 years ago, writing to real people who were in the midst of real circumstances, that John wrote these words, to encourage and to convict. Father, we, we love the times that your word is easier to take, and we know we also want to love the times it's harder to hear. So would you help us through this hard text? Help me to make it clear Keep me communicating clearly what your word actually says and grant us wisdom and and hearing and receptive hearts to receive how it applies to our lives. Oh God, help. Glorify your name. May Jesus be lifted up in his name. 
Amen. So we're just going to walk through this verse at a time. Verse 4, John writes this. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Everyone who keeps doing, in other words, everyone who keeps committing sin also keeps committing lawlessness. So what is lawlessness? Well, you can hear in the word itself, you can kind of hear the sense uh, that it means against the law or living as if the laws don't apply. Um, Lawless living. Laws don't apply to me. A devaluing or disregard for law. And of course, in the Bible, uh, this would mean a rejection of God's laws, God's rules, God's standards, which means rejection of God himself. So why does John make this point? It may be because there was a group that left the church back in uh, chapter 2. He talked about a group that went out from among us, that it might be seen that they are not all of us. And so it, it's probably because when they, part of the reason for them leaving was that they had this kind of teaching that they had been teaching that they had reached a place of spiritual enlightenment in knowing Christ so that sin didn't matter. And they, they had probably been minimizing sin and normalizing sin. So they might have taught things like this. Your spirit is good. Don't worry about what you do with your body and desires. You know, there's all kinds of ways we can attempt to minimize and normalize and redefine sin. So it goes something like this. It's all relative. Uh, We all have the right to choose what's right and wrong for ourselves. Some of those kind of statements. It's okay that I do what I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. And along with these kind of rationalizations, we can distort the truth of God's love for us and imagine that it means all that he just wants for us to be happy. And so if sinning makes me happy, God's okay with that. At least that's how the thinking can go. Or we imagine that God is tolerant and at least knows I'm only human. So John is saying that if you are minimizing, normalizing, and accommodating sin... in your life, you know that you're rejecting God's standards and God himself. In fact, no matter how you try to whitewash sin, no matter how nice a guy you feel that you are, you are doing lawlessness. In fact, John says sin is lawlessness, even if it seems small to us. Um, It's like uh, cancer, that at first there's a few cancer cells may not kill you yet, but left untreated, their true lawless, destructive nature will become evident and deadly. So verse 5, John says, If you claim to be a Christian, how can you go on sinning when Christ came to take away sins? That's what he says. You know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He could do this because he had no sins of his own. In him there is no sin. So by becoming the sin bearer in his death on the cross, he not only paid the penalty for our sins in our place, he also dealt the death blow to sin's death grip on the lives of all who trust and hope in him. So what John's saying here is, how can we, for whom Christ has taken away sins, take them back, so to speak, by continuing to commit sin? 
or keep clinging to sin? How can we minimize and normalize and accommodate our sins when the sinless Christ became sin for us to sever our sins from us? Now, for some reason, I keep using cancer illustrations because cancer is a wicked thing, and if you've had it, you know how wicked it is. But if, for example, we have had lung cancer and we've had the, the cancer removed, why would we go back to smoking if that's been the cause? So that's what John's saying. Christ came in order to take away sins. How can we continue sinning when he took them away? That's what he came to do. Therefore, verse 6, he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one who abides in Christ. So there's that word again, abides. Abides means to continue with, to stay in, to remain in. In this case, to remain steadfast in faith in Christ, to live in Christ. No one who does that, no one who keeps clinging to Jesus, keeps on sinning. In fact, John says, if you keep on sinning, you haven't seen him or known him. Spiritually, that means you haven't really believed. You haven't really seen and treasured him. You haven't valued him. You haven't really come to know Christ if you continue on in sin. You've not connected with him in a personal, living way. Now, by now, uh, you should be pretty concerned because these words are kind of scary. (laughs) Because how many of us, after we came to Christ, just quit sinning altogether? I'm looking for some hands. Come on, don't be humble. Admit it if if you've been sin-free since you came to Christ. So it's a little bit scary, the language John's using. And we need to talk about this because he's going to continue speaking this way over the next several verses. In fact, he gets even more intense. It gets harder. So what's John saying? Well, first, we've got to give him the credit for not being stupid or forgetful. Because back in chapter 1, he said things like, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. He also said, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So he's not encouraging Christians to sin. He's acknowledging that we do sin. And he's pointing to the, the way that we deal with it. And part of it is by not denying it. So he's not saying, pretend you don't sin. He's not encouraging it, but he's saying, we, we know that we do. And then second, we should also assume that John expected his readers to understand what he meant. And they didn't even have study Bibles. In fact, most of them didn't even have Bibles. Yet, there have been several ways people have tried to interpret this. And I'm going to spare you the list, and I'm just going to tell you what I believe best fits the context of the letter. What John is saying is that the child of God, and he's right in the middle of talking about being children of God, the child of God is one who is spiritually born of God. Born of God is a miraculous act that God does, birthing into us the new nature that has been freed from sin's rule. He talked about that in verse 29 of chapter 2, and he's going to talk about it again. That we are, If you're a child of God, you are born of God. To be born of God is to be a child of God. And with that, in this life we still have remnants of the old nature, but what is new has the spiritual DNA of Christ and his righteousness. Therefore, even though you and I still sin, we can't sin as we did when we had no connection to Christ. Habitual and persistent patterns of sinning in the same way that we always did before is at best inconsistent with having a new nature in Christ and may indicate no connection with him at all. 
All right, so he's talking about overall patterns, overall life patterns. And this gets kind of subjective, but he's saying there had to be a definitive break. If you're born of God, there had to be a definitive break in your sin. In fact, we can be deceived about that. So verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You know, John's logic, you can't, you can't beat it. It's just so straightforwardly true. It's just hard to figure out, man, how does this apply when I know that I still sin? Don't be deceived about this. The one who does righteousness is righteous as Christ is. So the, those who had defected from the churches that John was writing to must have been saying something like, we can be righteous in our spirits without being righteous in our behavior. A common way we hear this today is, basically, I'm a good person. I just make some poor choices. And we kind of write it off that way. Or, as long as I have a good heart, what I do doesn't matter. John warns us not to be deceived by any teaching or popular notions that how we live can be divorced from what we are. A person does what he is. There's nothing more true than that. What we are is what we do. What we are comes out. We can't divorce our behavior from who we are. So again, we've got to say John isn't teaching we will be perfect without sin as Christians in this life. It'd be great, but it's not going to happen in this life. But we must not so qualify his words, so dumb down his words, so that they end up meaning nothing. Just affirming the all-too-common idea that a profession of faith in Christ makes one a Christian. A profession of faith in Christ is a profession of faith in Christ. It doesn't guarantee that you're a Christian. You go, oh, he said it back here five, ten years ago, six months ago, 16 years ago, 60 years ago. That means he must be in. No, John is saying your life is the, is the evidence. It's whether you've experienced a new birth. You have a new righteous nature, something in you that is the righteousness of Christ. The focus of the righteous person will be Christ's righteousness. It won't be merely cultural or family upbringing. We're not talking about just kind of good moral behavior that uh, even people who are not Christians can, can really do well. We're talking about a Christ-centered obedience. In fact, that's what John says in the introduction to his letter. He's, he's writing them about having fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ. He's talking about a relationship. Out of that relationship comes a righteous behavior. Then, in verse 8, he gets even more intense. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So what he's saying is just as the one who does righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. It's a lot of righteous talk. Just as he's saying that the one who does righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. That is, he evidences his spiritual life connection is with Christ. So the one who does sin, literally that's what he says. The one who does sin shows his spiritual life sources from the devil. Because he says, for the devil is the original sinner. He was the first and worst sinner in the universe. His track record of sin goes way back. Every year he gets an F- in what used to be called citizenship on his report card. The one who practices sin sides with the devil. Whether intentional or not, whether he's running with the devil or not, whether he has sympathy with the devil or not. 
Yeah. She got it. A couple songs running. Yeah. So, right. Uh, the one who keeps helping fighting for Al-Qaeda is of Al-Qaeda, even if he has an American uniform. That's what John is saying. What you do reveals whose side you're on. Now, you say, I was barely hanging in with John so far, as it is with his extreme statements. But with this stuff about the one who does sin is of the devil, he's gone too far, he's off the deep end. Well, the reason we might think this way is because all of all the silly caricatures of the devil, such as that he wears red pajamas, he's got horns and a pitchfork, all that silly, ridiculous stuff that we've been pictured over the years, even we, even we who know from the Bible that the devil is, a, is the lead fallen angel who became evil when he rebelled against God, we might only think he's involved with extreme manifestations of evil, which he certainly is, such as Hitler or grotesque violence or bizarre occultic practices. There are many who don't believe a personal devil even exists, that they think it's a remnant of superstitious times, of an of a older, darker age, and we know better now, or that he is just a symbol of evil. Well, Jesus spoke literally that, that there is such a thing as a devil, and he called him a murderer and a liar. He wasn't just a symbol. He was a fallen angel who was a murderer and a liar. The devil couldn't defeat God and suffered his biggest defeat in Jesus' death and resurrection. So the worst the devil can do now, the worst he can do to us now, is use whatever strategies he can to keep people deceived about their sin, whether that they have sin or what the cure for it is. He doesn't care whether you deny sin, whether you downplay it, redefine it, despair in it, wallow in it, or try to pay it off through your own religious and moral efforts. He doesn't care whether you believe in him or not. His single-minded goal is that you die in your sins without becoming a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Until that happens, John says, you are of the devil. That means not that you're as outwardly and wildly weird and wicked as you can be. Now, some of you may be that, I don't know, but probably most of you are not. But uh, it simply means you're under his rule and influence spiritually. In fact, he loves when our sinning is cleaned up and looks acceptable because it is so much harder to detect, so much harder to identify sin. He loves moralistic sin because it's so easy for us to put our trust in our own goodness, supposed goodness. Just as when we appear outwardly healthy and unaware of a spreading cancer inside, so it is when our sin is harder to detect, at least to we, so we think. Paul wrote this. He talked, this is what Paul described as being under the influence of the devil spiritually. He said in Ephesians 2, 1-3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we're just out living according to the flesh, our fallen nature, uh, just going with the flow. That is under the influence of the devil. And we can either take John's word for it, or we don't. But in verse 8, he tells us, still in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, again, John is trying to expose the deception that sinning habitually can be c- compatible with life in Christ. 
He just said ongoing sin evidences that a person is spiritually under the influence of the devil. And this cannot be compatible with claiming to be a Christian because Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil, that is, sin. The Son of God didn't enter this world to negotiate with the devil or to try to reason with the devil or to try to help him be a a kinder, nicer devil. He came to destroy his works. And And he came to do it without destroying us as sinners. So how, how can he do that? How can he, you know, like chemo and radiation tre- treatment for cancer sometimes destroys the good cells? How can Jesus destroy the works of the devil and not destroy sinners at the same time? Well, some of you know the answer to that. Jesus performed a rescue operation that even the most elite and expert team of Navy SEALs could ever do. Jesus saved us by absorbing all God's just wrath against our sin He endured the power of God's righteous destruction of sinners in himself so that we who abide in him will never be condemned. Praise him. It's great news. Never be condemned. Only because Jesus absorbed the punishment and the wrath that I deserved. That's what we sang about in several of the songs. In doing this, he also destroyed the enslaving and dominating power of sin over us freeing us from the works of the devil. So how does he get the cure to us? Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Sin is potent and was so much a part of our nature that the only way we can be freed from its dominance in our lives is we need a spiritual new birth from God. So certain and effective is this new birth from God. So certain. John tells us that no one born of God keeps doing sin. Why not? Because God's seed abides in him. God's seed permanently, continuously resides in the the one born of God. God's seed is sort of like a stem cell transplant. Is God taking the sin-destroying righteousness and life-giving powerful spiritual genes of his son from his perfect humanity, his atoning death and his resurrection and his ascension and injecting it into us? implanting them into us. This seed immediately revises our spiritual genetic code from sin-dominant to sun-dominant, which means righteous-dominant. For the first time, we've had a righteousness from outside ourselves, a pure, unadulterated righteousness that comes from Jesus. Although the transformation process and progress can be inconsistent and full of struggles in this life because we still have that residue of sin within us, temptations in this world and the devil, the break from sin's dominance is real and will surely be complete in the resurrection. In fact, he makes this incredible statement, so absolutely does the new birth by the implantation of God's seed recode our spiritual genetics from sin dominant to righteous dominant, that John even says that the one born of God cannot keep sinning. Wow! Well, again, we understand that John is not forgetting what he said, that he acknowledges that we do sin. So what he's saying is there had to be a definitive break, a definitive change in you that sin no longer dominates you as it once did. And over the course of your life, the evidence will be that you're doing righteousness more and more and sinning less and less. And it will be a battle. In fact, in verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God. 
Hopefully it is. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Those born of God are children of God. He's made that point really clear. And he's saying, so certain is the new birth in its transformation of us that we cannot go on in unbroken patterns of sin. But John says, it is evident, it is clear, it is plain who God's children are. The one who does not do righteousness is not of God. It's just that straightforward. And because the new birth makes us children of God, we also love other children of God because they're our brothers and sisters. And John will talk more about that next week. We'll look at that. So imagine you're a rebel against your parents. I mean, just imagine. I know that that doesn't apply to anybody whatsoever in this room. But just imagine. You flee to a corrupt country, corrupt foreign country, and break some laws. You get arrested and sent to a really nasty prison where they make you do vile, excruciatingly hard tasks. Your dad is a hero. He boldly confronts them and goes to the local government, pays the bail and rescues you from the prison and takes you home. Then you turn around and rebel again, go back to that same corrupt country, and begin breaking the same laws again. In fact, you evidence you prefer the corruption in that country, even those of the prison, to the rescuing love and good rules of your, of your parents. Now, this is what it is to profess faith in Christ while by your life you show you are born of God. Show you are not born of God. You are not his child. You profess to know God, but by your deeds you deny him. You do not have true life in Christ. On the contrary, if you do remain loyal and you live according to your father's rules, you evidence that you belong to him. Now, this is really simple, straightforward teaching. It's just super hard to digest. So I'm going to debrief with you a few minutes and just talk about how this applies. First, there may be some of us in this room who are not making any profession of Christ whatsoever. And if you haven't done that, it's good to be clear about that. Rather than pretending or imagining making a pretense of professing Christ, that's good to know where you stand. However, it's not good that you don't have Christ. So you do need Jesus if you'd be forgiven and have life. And I just ask nobody has to leave this room today without placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is a mighty, sufficient, merciful Savior. And he loves to save. He doesn't do it uh, stringently. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He loves mercifully, powerfully to save. There may be some others of us who have made a profession of faith in Christ, and yet, over some years, maybe some months, but years in particular, there not, may not be much evidence that you were born again. Remember, John says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps sinning has seen him or knows him. If your life shows no growth in overcoming sin and growing righteousness... Stop trusting in past professions of faith or trusting in even things like attending church. Admit to Jesus your desperate need for true life in him. And then, I hope and believe many of us here today are born again, that is, we're God's kids, and I know you're really struggling. How do I know that? Not because I'm wiretapping your phone or doing anything like that, because I'm struggling. And so what's the difference between the hypocrite who professes faith and has no fruit, 
no evidence, and the one who is struggling? Well, only God knows that for sure. It says in 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his, but let him who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. So this is a challenging teaching for us, and my goal is not to... to, um, to disrupt the assurance of those who are truly God's children, but to confirm, if you are God's child, that it will be a struggle, it will be a battle to keep growing. Some of our sins may be less open, more subtle. Some of them may be more flagrant. We might wonder if it's possible we might not be born again. Our doing righteousness may seem inconsistent and feeble. Anybody's doing righteousness ever feel inconsistent and feeble? Okay, me and Jim and, and Roy. So, hey, let's hang together. Uh, we're way too comfortable with worldly attitudes and pursuits. Our prayer lives are weak. Our times in the Bible are few and far between or dry. And in general, our zeal for God and the gospel is mediocre. Has anybody ever felt that way? I mean, come on. Am I the only one that goes through that like a lot of the time? So what does that say for us? What do we do with this text? Because John is making some very absolute statements. Well, I hope John's words will convict, as they have me, where I need it. And by God's grace, may they refresh and remind us what we have and who we are as God's children. We do not have to remain stuck in sin, ever. There's never any sin that we're stuck in, that God's grace, by being by the gift of the new birth cannot overcome. We can be sin-free. We have to believe that. We don't have to say it's so inevitable I can't help it, even though we have to acknowledge that we do. We have freedom from sin, and we are free to do righteousness. We have Jesus' power not to sin and to do righteousness. So God will use words like this to convict and stir our hearts and to remind us of the benefit package that Jesus has provided for us as his children. Now let's, let's pray together. Father, these words are so unavoidably clear and they feel so extreme to us in in an age where we've probably dumbed down things quite a bit in terms of what you require. We love the fact that you save us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that there's nothing that we can do to earn your love or to be good enough for you to save us. We can't do it. We can't pay off our sins ourselves Only the wrath-absorbing death of Christ on the cross could have ever paid for our sins. And his sin-defeating death and resurrection, he was able to break the power of sin in our lives and give us the gift of being your children, even as we saw last week. What kind of love is this that we should be called the children of God when we don't deserve it? So, Father, would you cause your word to move in our lives, whether to call those who have never professed faith in Christ, who know they don't, to receive him today, or those who have made a profession of faith, but there's just, the evidence is just not there, especially over years of patterns of just repetitive sinning that just never changes. And those of us who continue to do have sin battles, but there is that evidence that there's been growth in Christ-likeness. And Father, we often don't know that very well. You are the great physician, Lord Jesus. You alone know the condition of our heart. So whether we need to repent for the first time and come to life for the first time, or whether we need to repent for the 5,000 and first time, 
as one who has life, and part of the sign of life is our repentance. You know that for sure. But thank you, Father, for the gift of being your children. Thank you for the gift of the powerful gift of new birth in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.